Looks like you've been missing a lot of work lately. I wouldn't say I've been missing it, Bob. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to the Speak Up Podcast. This is Work Smart, and I'm your host, Ray Gillenwater, the podcast where we tell you all about how to be more efficient and effective on the job. Today, we're joined by Chris Dover from Growth Monsters, and Chris is a local guy here in Orange County that I had the pleasure of meeting a week or two back over coffee, just a random connection, uh, two strangers in the same space meeting up and having a chat, and Chris's story is super cool, and Chris, you're a really interesting guy, so I invited you to the show, and you you graciously accepted, so uh, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Ray. Yeah, thank you, man. It's uh, It's a pleasure. Yes, sir. So why don't we start off as always with a work smart tip? What is your your best work smart tip to be more efficient, productive, effective, what have you? Uh, probably one of the best things that I do and do very consistently is I do like a daily stand up with myself where I have a big list and usually the list is actually little post-it notes of a bunch of things that I want to get done that day, that week. And I'll pick three things out every day and put it in the, uh, the doing pile and make sure I get those, uh, get those knocked out no matter what every day. Nice. Yeah. I like that, that triage style. Do you, um, what, uh, what's your selection criteria? Do you kind of blend urgent and important or what, uh, what makes you choose something to, to be slotted into the today column versus staying in the, the pile of things to do? Uh, it, it falls in with my, like my OKRs for, you know, my objectives and key results for the, uh, the quarter that I'm trying to focus on. So that pretty much guides everything. I try not to be too reactive to emergencies or, um, priorities that are not, uh, not exactly my own or are not aligned with those. And, um, yeah, I pretty much will just grab a, grab something that I know that needs to get done. I, I guess oftentimes I'll do, um, I'll grab something that's been sitting in that backlog for a little bit, uh, make sure I throw that in there. And then probably something that I, I have a deadline coming up in the next few days or today or whatever. And I, I'll throw that in there. Uh, and then usually it's something that's maybe an investment, uh, towards future, maybe, you know, like blogging, writing a blog post, um, you know, getting on the, you know, making a large email, something like that, that I kind of look at that as an investment in, uh, future results of some sort. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a good blend. So a bit of uh, Hey, what, what do I need to do that needs to get me closer to my goal for the, for the day, the week and the quarter, what's been pending for a long time that, that needs to get done one way or the other. Um, and what's a, what's a good investment for the future. Those are kind of the, the main criteria from what I've gathered. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's it. I dig it. And what, uh, what makes you stick with, with the analog style of post-its, which I know a lot of people do. Um, I'm just a, I'm an online guy though. I, for some reason, well, maybe it's cause my handwriting's so bad that if I wrote stuff down, it would just be uh, a code that I couldn't crack. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> is there a particular reason why you stick with post-its instead of like a Trello board? Uh, well, I do use Trello. Uh, I use for, for the different, um, different projects I work on. Usually there's a different workflow, Uh, so I'll use Trello for when I'm working with the team or a bunch of team members or whatever workflow that they're working in. Uh, I usually pop in and out of, uh, teams. So I, rather than forcing mine on them, I usually blend in with theirs. Uh, I use uh, 
all the different, uh, you know, there's projects, which is another, uh, a tool I use for growth, um, which is a better iteration than the version of spreadsheets that I use. And, but it is still basically the same thing. I have a, uh, I review my OKRs for the, uh, for the time period, my KPI, you know, key performance indicators, what's going on, what's happening here, what's working, making sure I'm on track. Uh, then I look at my backlog It's something that, um, something that might, you know, the, the same criteria, pull out something like that and then, uh, prioritize them and get going. So, uh, the, the version of the post-it notes here at home or wherever I am that I'm set up for a period of time is really about, I don't know, there's something really satisfying about pulling a, a yellow post-it note off the wall or whatever color we're using that week. Um, actually off the mirror is where I have it right now and moving it to a different column or just tossing it, uh, in the, in the done file. Yeah. And that's, that's something that shouldn't be overlooked. I'm reading this book about habits at the moment and I, I really like it. I've, uh, just as an aside, I've been listening to books on audio lately at double speed, which yeah. is, a, which is a bit ridiculous. It sounds terrible. And whenever someone jumps into my car and, and the car starts auto playing the book, it kind of sounds like a robot is, um, is yelling at me really quickly. Uh, and so, so it's super, it's not exactly an enjoyable listening experience, but I find it to be like a, a really quick way to sort of upload information in, into my brain without spending any extra time, um, reading at night or taking any extra time out of my day. Um, but that, that aside, so this book about habit talks about the concept of quick wins and it talks about the, the concept of, of rituals and, um, and, and certain triggers that, uh, that trigger behavior and trigger feel good emotions. And, uh, that, that stuff can't be understated because if you happen to build a ritual or a habit and that tactile feel of ripping the adhesive posted off the wall is something that gives you a, a charge of adrenaline or a, a, a feel good, mm-hmm. um, uh, feeling for lack of a better word, then, then it works. And that helps reinforce the habit and it helps you stay focused on doing that daily. So, so I think that's, that's smart. On the topic of tech, though, and stuff that you use to to help you in your daily, what other stuff are you using? So, what was the um, what was the tool that you mentioned? There was the the word processing one. And there was a uh, was it projects? Did you say? Yeah. So, projects is a tool from Growth Hackers, uh, which is a community for you know growth hackers. And uh, there, there's a stand. You know, growth hacking started in this, I guess, obscure mindset that you, you know, you're, you're part technical, part, uh, marketing and has really become an actual process of using the scientific method, I guess, to, uh, run a lot of experiments and find ways to get some traction in your companies and identify that. So using a lot of analytical tools and whatnot, but one of the big problems in, I mean, so Google analytics exists, Mixpanel exists, uh, heap Kissmetrics, all the different analytics tools out there exist certainly. Uh, but one thing that wasn't really, wasn't really being talked about very much was the actual process of how do you come up with ideas? How do you prioritize an idea? Like, like, why would you do Facebook ads over an email campaign versus, you know, user onboarding or something like that? And then how do you put them together? So, so projects is a great tool to help you systematize the, um, the growth process ideation, you score your ideas and it's very collaborative. 
and then you build all, build out the experiments and move it into a list of, uh, you know, uh, the, the Kanban board of like to do, doing done. Uh, and then somebody either is assigned it or takes it and builds out the experiment, deploys it. And then you document the, well, you write out hypothesis and whatnot, document the, um, the process and the results and store it away. So if you're working at a pace of, let's say three to five experiments per week, which, you know, initially doesn't sound like very much like that's, wow, that's exciting. Chris, you put together an email. That was an experiment. Yay. But (laughs) you know, when you, when you're piling on three experiments a week, maybe even up to five to 10, depending on what you're working on over the period of a month, you know, you're looking at anywhere from, from 12 to 20 experiments done three months, you should have about, you know, 40 to 60 experiments done and, or, you know, even possibly up into a hundred and tagging that information with different characteristics that is searchable. And, you know, you start looking in your analytics and you're going back and maybe three months, six months later, you look back at what you did and say, you know what? Yeah. An email was starting to work for us, but we didn't really go with it. Let's look at what we've done in email for the last few months and, and see, or, you know, what sort of experience we've done and let's create some new tests. So that's really, that's really valuable. So you can look back what has been done, what hasn't done. Also, definitely when you keep trying the same thing over and over, it's really good to see like, yeah, we've done like 80 email experiments over the last year. We need to focus on a different, uh, different channels. And, um, yeah, so it's uh, just projects.growthhackers.com, I believe. It's in beta, so I, I think you just have to request it, or um, I, I, I don't know exactly how I got it, but I hit them up, and uh, they hooked me up with a um, a free trial. But the same thing was actually built. In fact, I was doing it in Google Spreadsheets over the last uh, last year or two and created my own template, and I wrote a blog post about it a while back, a few, about a week back or something like that. And somebody this morning hit me up on medium and said, Hey, can you share that doc with us? So, okay. So <laughs> I just, uh, popped the link in there and, um, commented to that person. And yeah, so a handful of people have been, uh, downloading it. So that's cool. You know, it's all about just getting the right stuff out there and, and helping other people do good stuff too. Yeah, definitely. And if you'd like, um, I'll, I'll share that link in the show notes so the listeners can take a peek. And, sure. and this just has me thinking that, um, yeah, I, I love what you said about the the speed and the quantity of these experiments, because ultimately, as as smart people like Paul Graham say all the time, the, the benefit of a startup is speed. And the quicker you can see if something works or not, and then move on to the next thing. And the faster you can accumulate those bucket or that bucket of things that work or don't work, the more quickly you'll find product market fit, the more quickly you'll, you'll scale and the better you'll trounce your, your big, slow, sloppy competitors, because on the continuum of, uh, of marketing efficacy, you've got, you know, big fortune 500 companies with massive budgets that place big bets that may be intelligence-based and may not be. And I've certainly been a part of companies that uh, spend a lot of money on the latter. And then you have companies that are doing proper growth hacking, um, which means they're just running a a litany of experiments every single week to see what's really connecting and and what isn't. And it's everything's fully measurable and there's a a very clear and distinct ROI. So I, I, I love the approach. And I was just wondering, case study wise, is there a recent example? Is there a company? And, and feel free to obscure the name if that's useful. But 
I'd love to hear of an example recently where, where you've worked with a company or a team on testing a bunch of different stuff and, and uh, kind of what the problems were, what your approach was, and, um, and ultimately what, what occurred as a result of, uh, of the success or of the, of the experiments. Yeah. Um, so, so I actually, well, I'll just clarify it really, um, beforehand I'll, there's my belief and I continue to test this. There's, there's basically three phases that, uh, you need to go through with a company. Uh, you have pre-product market fit. And if you're, if you're a growth team, uh, if, if you're, a, if you're a founder or if you're a, a startup that doesn't have product market fit, uh, bringing a growth team in there to, uh, to do this experimentation is really, really important. It's not to scale up the business and, and really optimize PPC campaigns, for example. Um, but it's, it's really creating that systematic approach to run experiments and discover where product market fit actually is. And if you're there or how close you are to it and continue to iterate towards a, uh, you know, the product market fit, which, you know, was pretty much, we've come to a description or a, a definition of what product market fit is, which is about if you were to survey your customers, let's say a hundred customers and 40%, 40 of them said that they would be disappointed if you did not exist, that's pretty much product market, product market fit. Mm -hmm. So you run that experiment in a number of ways. It could be a survey, it could be turning the service off for a day and see if people actually complain, um, making a button blow up on them or something. <laughs> uh, it's, it's a, you know, it's a frustrating experience, but when you do find out, depending on the method that you do, it gives you a, a lot more confidence to say, okay, now it's time to look after it. Then the next, um, the next phase is, is like pretty much just getting ready for growth. So segmenting out the, uh, uh, getting into the data, doing your, your interviews, making sure your monitoring of data uh, uh, is set up. So if you don't have data of a certain event or some sort of feedback loop with your customers, you need to make sure that that gets built and set up so that you can monitor it. There's all sorts of events that are not tracked a lot of times. Lots of user interviews, discovering what works for them, what doesn't, what they're interested in and what they're looking for. Uh, and that, you know, that could be like a three month, six month process sometimes could be just a couple of weeks. Uh, but that's all in preparation for growth itself. And then the final phase is growth where you accelerate your, you, you've got a lot of information at this point, pre-product market fit, post-product market fit analytic, you know, you've done your research and suddenly now you have a bunch of ideas that you want to start testing. And some of the, the hard parts about that is doing the tests and, um, sitting back and not tinkering with them and getting used to a team. So, uh, yeah, I have, I have a number of examples on that one. Um, an example, I would say that that's probably one of the reasons that I, um, stop working with customers or not stop working, but usually the, the biggest problem I have, uh, when working with, um, founders is that they believe they have product market fit and they don't want to test and end up, you know, spending a thousand dollars a day on Facebook ads, for example, mm. um, which, you know, fine, um, <laughs> do that. But, uh, I, I personally am, am a much bigger fan of just spending, you know, $20 a day for a couple of days to validate a certain thing, come back, test it, get out, do more in user interviews, and then 
build upon that. Once you really do have that product market fit, then you should not have any concern in spending a thousand dollars. If you know how much it costs to acquire a user and how valuable that user is, then a thousand dollars a day is certainly doable. Mm. Um, so I don't know if that totally answered the question, but that's generally the, the process I go with companies. Yeah, it's a smart process and it's, it's certainly lower risk and it's, it's higher velocity. So it makes good sense. Um, and then what, uh, what other tools do you have in your toolkit? So you've mentioned Google analytics and kiss metrics and mix panel. And, um, you know, you've mentioned projects, what, what other tools do you like to use to, to keep track of everything, to run these campaigns and to keep everything in sync? I'm a big for, okay. First of all, I'm a big fan of podcasts at two X speed. I, I don't, I didn't want to go over that cause that is genius. And <laughs> I'm not many people are of the same mindset. I try to do about almost about four hours a day of listening to podcasts. So if I can increase the velocity, I think that I'm jamming even better knowledge up there. So much yeah. respect on that. That's awesome. I, I, I just discovered this and I've been crushing like a book a week, which is way, way yeah. more than I would do in the past. Cause I would never make the time to read, especially nonfiction. I mean, I read uh, fiction before bed, but I would never make time for nonfiction. So I love it. And, and at first it was, uh, it was not comfortable to listen to, but I, I <laughs> felt like, okay, if I can be disciplined to get used to it, then um, I kind of I kind of imagine that old Keanu Reeves movie from the '90s where Johnny Mnemonic was plugging into his brain and just uploading totally. data. And I was like, all right, if that's the benefit, then it's worth it's worth a shot. So yeah, I, I love the tip too. Yeah, that's uh, that, that's big. Some day, some days I can't do it. It just my brain won't let me do it. Uh, and there's some days I can't even really just listen to a podcast or audiobooks. But uh, holy crap, that is such a game changer. I did the Arnold Schwarzenegger book, which is a 23 hour book, audio book. Mm. Uh, and I, that was the motivation to really get into it because like 23 hours of just listening to a book is, is somewhat challenging. And so, yeah, I two X'd it and got through it much quicker. Please tell me he wasn't narrating it. <laughs> he did the, I think he did the first chapter. <laughs> uh, it was, it was, I did that at normal speed, but, uh, that would be a challenge. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go back and listen to it at 2x just for that. Nice. <laughs> um, okay, so uh, your question was another tool that uh, that I use for this. You know, I'm a big fan of Facebook. Uh, 1.6 at the time of this recording, billion people are on the platform. And though it may not be contextual to a lot of people's thinking, say, hey, I have a B2B product, so why would I be getting people on Facebook? You know, that's a that's a LinkedIn domain or, you know, that's, we, we got to be contextual to that. And, you know, again, 1.6 billion people, they are on Facebook, uh, even though they, you may be looking at them as a B2B client. No, they're no doubt on Facebook. Um, I use Ad Espresso, which are some friends, um, up in the Bay area and they do an amazing job with this, uh, this platform. It's a, it's a Facebook ads platform. And, What's really exciting about it is I can do about 250 different um, variants of an ad. So let's say I want to test two images, two messages, two calls to action and some text uh, against each other. And then I also want to test um, what what's really great about it is on Facebook, people tend to follow um, follow things that they like. Right. So. Uh, Maybe you go to 24 hour fitness, but you are LA fitness or whatever, but you're probably going to be following something like, uh, Equinox, something a little bit more aspirational, right? Mm. 
And so it really helps us put together our user personas when we're talking to our customers, when we're learning who we're working with, not so much to try to advertise to them and get them to come and buy, but more to find out what they're into, what they like, what are their likes, dislikes, what are, you know, what, what is aspirational to them. And that helps us adjust our pretty much everything from the user persona. So the, any verbiage we use in emails, calls to action, uh, any copy is written, any imagery that's used and, and just the tone of the company or the product when they speak to that. And ideally we come down with a handful of different user personas. And so it's something that, that makes my job really easy. Cause I can test again, all those images, calls to actions, messages, but then I can test which, um, what sort of thing people are, uh, the, the user persona is really into. So if it's, uh, if we have like a, a urban millennial, um, artist type persona, so we, you know, let's call it like, um, artist Annie and, you know, we throw in a bunch of different things. Maybe we'll throw Nike because that probably isn't something that they're going to be interested in, but maybe they are. And then we throw in like whole foods, we throw in all these different, um, things that they perhaps might be following. We start developing trends and, and we can really drill down and in two or three days, you know, 50, 60 bucks on some ads, you can discover what people are. Uh, I mean, we've done interviews, but when you get more into stuff that they're not sharing you over the phone or over a screen or in, at coffee, like you're seeing their activity online, uh, you can adjust it. So, um, at espresso is one of my favorite tools to not just, um, use to advertise. I mean, I, I work my way up to like a 5% click through rate and, you know, 10 or 11 cents cost per click. Like it's it, by iterating to, uh, better solutions, I'll start out, you know, much lower, but that's, that's pretty good once you start getting that high. And even if it's and you're not even doing it to spend, to acquire the customer at that point, you know, you're still getting that level of uh, CPC. And if you have product market fit, then you can certainly, you know, flip the switch on and test that out. Yeah. I'm noticing a recurring theme from you, which I, which I like <laughs> quite a bit, which is, uh, Hey, don't go spending money to, to appeal to a customer and grow before you've actually spent the money to figure out who your customer is or who the most efficient customer is who the cheapest customer is to acquire, yeah, which I absolutely. think is really wise and it'll save a lot of time, a lot of heartache and a lot of uh, wasted cash. So it's, it's a good tip, but, um, you mentioned personas and I, I like the concept mm -hmm. of user personas. And I think marketing in general is an area where, um, conceptually I'm, I'm good. And, and I understand a lot of the best practices, um, at a high level, but when it comes to actual implementation, I'm, I'm by no means an expert and need a lot of help. So this is just a a useful chat for me to learn, which is uh, uh, definitely one of the side benefits of this podcast, generally speaking. Mm -hmm. But with with that in mind, do you do you define the personas yourself, or do you have like a, a list of existing personas that you draw from to figure out who target customers are for the product that you're trying to grow? Well, it's uh, typically it's it's a team process, so we have a bunch of exercises that we do to help get into the uh, get into the mind of the customer or the user. And like, uh, so we do empathy mapping, which is you put a persona in a certain situation. Um, so usually the companies we work with, uh, the projects I work on, 
the team already has an idea of who the who the user is and also when we get out there and do the um you know dig into the analytics and start segmenting those we can find uh you know we can find your i, I basically break it down into um three groups you have your hvt so the, these are high value targets these are people who are going to require the least amount of effort on your part and give you the most amount of success uh, then you have the middles which are people that could swing in both ways. And we segment those out into multiple different categories too. And then you have your, you know, your time wasters or not exactly time wasters, but certainly, um, people that take a lot more time and are a lot harder to acquire and take a little bit more effort. Um, and the, you know, those are the LVTs, low, uh, low value targets. And we start to try to find where the value is among those different uh, segments. And uh, usually in the middle, there's a lot. It's like the the high values are just obvious and the low values are usually pretty obvious too. But the middle is where there's a lot of like a lot of opportunity. And so we'll dig into it and, you know, interview the team, you know, who customer service or emails or whatever, you know, like who are you dealing with most? What is, you know, let's. Let's see if we can't go find their social profiles online. Let's see who they are. Let's talk to them and discover a persona for them. And then, um, you know, in the data as well, we can get a lot of that information. But that usually starts with you create a, a base persona there. And then we do a bunch of exercises. So I like to include when we do, for example, like empathy maps, which is you have a persona and we're trying to empathize with that persona that user, we put them in an everyday situation that does not involve being, uh, ready to use your pro purchase your product or use your product. Right. So, um, rather than putting them in front of their laptop, uh, on a plane or in an office or on their phone on the couch, you know, we put them in the situation of they're at a, um, they're standing in line at the bank or they're walking down the beach in Venice beach or something like that. And then you break that down into four different parts. What is this person hearing, uh, seeing, feeling and, uh, and doing right. And we'll put together a group of, um, hopefully a diverse group. So, uh, an example, we worked on a mobile, uh, mobile app a while back. And the first time we did the exercises, it was just me because it was a little, it took a, it took a little effort to, to get, uh, people to buy off on the game. They did not see the, uh, initial benefit of having user persona. So I did the first few personas and eventually I was able to get the CEO, the CMO or, you know, the, yeah, CMO, an intern, one of the providers and a customer, uh, so equally split on gender as well, and certainly diverse on, on age and belief and job. <laughs> and we did that. Um, we did that exercise, the empathy map a couple of times for a couple of personas. And when, what we came out of that was two different personas that we had not recognized before. And that allowed us to start focusing on going after uh, a plan to go after these sort of customers. And the uptick was quick. We instant, once we realized that there was a market for the, or, or there was a user that really liked what we had and we really had a great solution that was right within their price zone. We didn't really realize it until then. And that allowed us to just accelerate it. And it was a, it was a great win. It was a quick spike. 
I wonder when the day will come when we no longer have to guess about this stuff. And I'm imagining, <laughs> I'm imagining Facebook's next product will be, oh, you want to know what your, your user is actually hearing right now? Um, well, here, you can just listen to their smartphone because <laughs> oh, I know I they're doing a bit of that creepy stuff at the moment. And, um, and yeah, it wouldn't surprise me in this, in this world that's, that's uh, ever changing into the, the 1984 novel. Have you... Sorry to, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was going to say, did you see Ex Mac Machina? Have you seen that oh, movie? Oh, yeah. Brilliant. Such crazy, a good huh? flick. Loved it. <laughs> so, so creepy and so realistic uh, and so crazy all at the same time. Seems like it's happening right now, you know? <laughs> it is indeed. It is indeed. Um, but we, we digress, unfortunately, which, which we happen to do quite often. Um, and I'm looking forward to do, doing again, by the way, when we chat next week, because there's a, a few of these things I'd like to dig into on a couple of projects that I'm involved in. And I think we can add a bit of your magic to what we're doing and hopefully get a little more intelligent and precise with our, with our efforts, which, which leads me to kind of a business question for you. And this is just something I'm curious about. Um, it must be extraordinarily difficult to apply this methodology to your own business growth monsters, because you happen to be in an industry filled with quacks, like the the proportion of quackery in in your business is so high that I'd imagine that cutting through the clutter and actually getting someone's attention to realize that you offer a quality service and you're not just another one of those like, hey, do you want to do search engine optimization type <laughs> shops? Must be so hard. So I'm I'm guessing that there's probably a, a weird paradox that which is I'm assuming your business is highly referral based um, and that the, the online outreach stuff probably isn't that effective, which is strange because the online outreach stuff is what you help to optimize. Am I, am I a fair in that assumption? And then B is that, <laughs> is that what you experience? And is that your approach? A one, two, one, um, giving binary results. Yes. <laughs> a yes, definitely. And B yes, definitely. Um, uh, it's, it's like that old saying, you know, the, you know, the mechanic, never trust a mechanic with a, you know, with the best running car because he's always too busy working on his own thing, not working on customers. You know, he's not in demand by customers. Mm. Um, I think there's a bit of that to it. Um, you know, we, we have, <laughs> we, we really don't have an amazing growth machine for ourselves and it's both good and bad because, you know, a lot of people judge you based on, uh, you know, your tactics, right? Oh, do you have this in place? Oh, do you have this in place? And, you know, quite honestly, yeah, I don't, um, I use, I've discovered one channel really works well for me, uh, and that's blogging. And so I, you know, I continue to blog and create content in that way. And it's been very, very helpful. And it always leads to, um, some good conversations and eventually people hit me up when they need to. Um, but you know, you go to, you start looking at like, there's no Facebook ad campaign. If there is, it's, we're running a test for some reason. Uh, there's no like tested drilled out email campaign that's happening. If we do have any emails coming in, it's because, you know, we, we want to be, or going out, we want to be attentive and, you know, we're keeping in touch with our people. Uh, yeah, there it's, it's the, uh, we could stop and do it ourselves and, uh, just make ourselves the, <laughs> the shining light of what growth should be. Mm. But I think that, um, we're better served helping the, uh, helping the clients and the people we work with in our community to do their things. And eventually, like you said, referral is the, is the big, 
big business generator. I mean, I, 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 I do phone calls and emails and coffees all the time, chatting with people about new business. And, uh, you know, we're, we're not the $5 million a month sort of, um, team maybe someday. And if that someday comes, we'll certainly have that really good process in place. But <laughs> yeah, we, uh, we do most of our work on, on client projects. Yeah. And after all, you are offering a service and you're, you're, I'm assuming helping most clients grow their, their product. Um, so the, the approach should be slightly different. Um, which leads me to wonder, are you helping? So, so a big piece of, of your outreach and your marketing engine is content. Do you also help clients with their content marketing strategy or is that, um, is that something that you save for, for the, the inbound focused people? So what I do is, um, I, I look to bring on the best at that. So we'll go out and we'll run some tests and discover that, uh, let, let's say content is a, a key, uh, driver for certain, certain companies say. And so let, we'll run some tests and try to find out, okay, is blogging is videos, whatever it is, which one has, is converting a little bit better, which one drives more traffic or whatever our metric that we're after is. And then once we validated what it is, then I look to go and bring on the best people I can in the business at that price that we can pay. And in hopes that, um, and, and people I've worked with before who are really, really good at working with clients and getting their information to a, a great, um, solution. Sometimes that is the, you know, the CEO themselves just taking the time to blog. And then we look at ways to get workload off of that person's plate so that they can, um, you know, it, it, it is basically a growth hack to like, you know, get a personal assistant in there to help the, you know, the, the sole founder, you know, these two or three founders to get more work done that definitely we found that as a, as a great solution for, um, some of these companies to grow, but, uh, yeah, we will identify what it is and we want to get back to testing. That's our, that's our bread and butter is finding opportunities, seeing where they are, and then getting people in to come and help out and play these out. So if we discover that um, the blogging is going to work, we'll bring on a couple of uh, writers, get them connected with the founders. They get their voice. They collaborate on some uh, blogs, get those blogs pushed out. You know, we do whatever, whatever sort of uh, whatever thing we can do to make sure it gets enough eyeballs and then um, and then analyze. So what themes are working? what time of day, you know, how many words, what location, what's it, you know, make sure we have all the monitoring in place. And then if it continues to work, then we look at, you know, bringing, getting the company to invest a lot more in that avenue, you know? So a great example would be like HubSpot, how they invest so heavily in content and it's proven out to be very, very successful for them. Speaking of which, so do you find a difference in, well, I guess a better question is, do you focus primarily on products that appeal to consumers or do you also focus on products that appeal to, to business? And if so, I'd, I'd love to hear some of your thoughts on differences in approach when figuring out the best formula for a B2B focused product or a consumer oriented product. Sure. Uh, it's, it's both really, um, there, there's multiple stages of B2B, right? You could be just, a, you know, you look at something like Trello as a tool, like how do they monetize? How do they grow? Uh, how do I, they monetize? Cause I use them all the time for everything I work on and I've never paid them a dime, which I feel bad about. What, what is their strategy? Sorry to interrupt you there. 
Well, I, I, I don't know. I'm, I, <laughs> I mean, maybe I'll tell you, uh, when I, you know, if, if I chat with them, um, but, but what I'm, you know, you look at a product like that and you say, okay, is that, what sort of B2B is that? Cause that's also B2C, right? Mm. And sure they have an enterprise level, but do they really push it? But, um, so there's, there's a number of levels to do it there. I, I really go back to the idea that, that, you know, we're a high tempo testing team. Our, you know, our job is to get through the data and find opportunities and exploit them and continue to test and continue to grow. And I don't find that B2B or B2C is any different in that need. The tech or the tactics that we use are different and, and that's fine. We, we don't, we're not exactly, we, we don't consider ourselves the best at tactics. So I'm not the best SEO guy or, um, Twitter, you know, a social media guy or anything like that. I'm good at a number of things. And, but what I'm really good at is testing and discovering these things and then finding people to come in and take advantage of them. So, um, there, yeah, I, at least specializing for me, I haven't really had a need to specialize in B2B or B2C as long as I continue to stay true to my tactics or my methodologies, I should say, um, you know, the tactics are always there. The, you can always figure out how to do the minimal test of whatever it is that you're you know, testing that week. You can easily go spend some time researching that and create, you know, we're not creating the greatest solution of, you know, like an email campaign. We're not going to go out and create an amazing email campaign. We're going to create an email campaign that's minimally viable to give us validation. And then we'll go ahead and say, okay, now we need the pros to come in here and, you know, the big boys to come in and girls to come in and, um, you know, make things happen for us. And then I'm just curious because the, throughout the process of discovering product market fit, there's the ebb and flow of product iteration and the iteration of defining who your customer is and the two need to, to sync up and match up at some point. And it's not a one way street, it's a two way street. So, um, within your process, when you work with these companies that are trying to figure out who their customer is, do your outputs, do your discoveries oftentimes influence the product itself? Absolutely. So uh, that's, that's a great, um, that's a great point. We, when I kind of referred to it a little bit earlier by saying, okay, we need, you know, to bring somebody in to help out the founding team, you know, a growth hack, as I mentioned, could be hiring an assistant or hiring a, a scheduler or something like that, because the company literally grows if you bring on, you know, somebody to help out in this, that, or the other same thing with product. So the, you know, if we're running these small, very small tests and, and a lot of it could just be interviews and feedback, and then we, you know, jump into the standup. Um, it's really important that these teams that, that product and marketing and, and operations and, you know, the, the C-suite and everybody is, uh, especially in the early stages is vocal and open and knows what each person is doing. And so if we're able to come in and, and, you know, give our feedback on these results, we, when we do our weekly growth meetings, um, the ideal person or, um, the ideal people to be in this uh, these meetings are engineering design, um, like a product manager. And then, uh, from the externals and then the, the C-suite people, uh, so CEO and CMO and perhaps CTO, um, depending on the age of the company, I guess, and the stage of the company even better. Uh, and then we have our own 
team, which is a, you know, a full stack product team itself. So we have a product manager, full stack dev, a designer, UX design, um, analyst, and then me. And we kind of run this te- or we run these uh, meetings to where everybody's in talking about what has, we have, we have a good format too. So like, what is, what have we did, you know, what did we do last week and what are the results? And we look at that, discuss it. And then we talk, you know, we choose some of the experiments we're going to run, um, you know, look at our KPIs and then schedule other meetings. So if we need to run some onboarding, uh, experiments, let's say we're doing a mobile app, uh, you know, we're going to need dev the engineering team to build a certain, you know, onboarding flow. For example, if we have onboarding flow one and two, and we're going to AB test that that's not something that we're going to build ourselves. So we'll build the wireframes, send it off to them and then they'll build it. Interesting. And, and, uh, do you, ever work with teams or companies that are launching a concept and not a product? So in the, in terms of like the lean startup style approach where perhaps you've decided just to throw a landing page out there to see if you can get people to click, it it would occur to me that the value that you bring is so crucial and can save so much time, money, and missteps that the sooner you do it, the better. So I, I, I've just seen from reading up about you that you do focus on seed stage companies and series A stage companies and just wondering what proportion of your customers are actually just testing hypotheses and haven't necessarily built a product yet. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely, um, I, I work with a lot of those companies and, uh, typically I'm not doing there. Typically it's just, we're chatting about ideas and, and, and doing a mentorship or a coaching program and they're actually building the experiments and deploying. And I'm, helping them through the ideas of like, this is what this would give you. This is how you go about that. Um, usually when, when I'm actually executing those sort of things, it's companies that, I mean, first of all, it's, you know, there's, there should be, um, I think it outsourcing that to somebody is, is fine. And some people are really good at it, but I also think that the founders need to know like the pain themselves. So a lot of times I'm not, they're not really customers. Um, but when you're looking at a company that has, uh, you know, they're looking at how to, maybe they are a B2B right now and they have a B2C product and they need to figure out how to get that there. Then certainly we do the, you know, the landing pages and the squeeze, you know, some Facebook ads to a, to a landing page and then a click through. Um, yeah, I guess that's it. Well, well, I have probably an extra 150 questions for you, but (laughs) <laughs> Time will not allow such things, so we'll have to save a couple dozen of those for our next coffee. But um, like it between now and then, is there anything else you wanted to end on? Anything that uh, you wanted to mention that we haven't had a chance to talk about so far? Well, what I didn't get is what book are you uh, reading at two x right now? Oh, it's that habit book. Um, oh, right. Who yeah. is that? Yeah, it kicks ass. I recommend it. Um, what's What's the name? So, the power of habit is the power name of, of the book. And, um, my co-founder Keith Barney started listening to it and recommended that I do the same. And, uh, there's a lot of oversimplified examples and like, yeah, and the company did this one thing and then it just changed it and everyone won and it was perfect. (laughs) You know, the, the typical things you find in these types of books. But, um, when you strip away some of that stuff and you dig into some of the detail and the science and the studies, it's actually super interesting. And there are some practical and actionable things you can do to, to reevaluate the habits that are, um, uh, taking over your daily life. Cause ultimately we are creatures of habit and we are not consciously thinking about everything we do in our daily lives simply because that would be too inefficient. And so it's a matter of thinking about, Hey, what, what are the habits that I have and 
have I have I gone through each of those in detail, and can any of those be further optimized? Which is something that I'm uh, obviously obsessed with. Hence the title of this podcast. Yeah. What uh, what habits? Let's let's pick two or three habits have you implemented recently that uh, you maybe picked up from that. So I'll first talk about the process, and the the process is um, trigger behavior reward, and the thesis uh, in this book is that a habit once ingrained in your brain cannot be stripped out. And I don't know if that's necessarily true because I know there's a lot of work with psychedelics that's recently being done to actually like eradicate habits that are deep rooted. I don't know the the neurochemistry or the, or the science behind one claim or the other, but I find it interesting. And the claim in the book is that if you, if you take a habit that exists and you figure out what the trigger is and you simply try to replace the behavior and then you try to replicate the reward or have a, a similar or different reward as long as it's it's positive, then um, then perhaps you can change change the behavior and change the outcome. And so the example given in the book is like, you know, if you're a smoker, um, instead, whenever you get that feeling, whatever it may be, um, whether it's anxiousness or boredom that typically triggers you to smoke, instead of then going out and going for a smoke, try to replace that habit with a a five minute meditation session. And I'm, I'm making this up now because I, I don't know the specific examples off, off, the, off the cuff in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, I, yeah, there's a, there's a bunch of things I'm looking at. One is super micro and I have this habit of, of picking at my beard, which sounds weird. Oh yeah, but like, oh, yeah. me too. <laughs> when, when, I'm, when I'm bored or when I'm anxious or when I'm thinking, I just sit there and pluck at my beard and it's so damn annoying. And I uh, don't want, I mean, a full beard is, is the meaning of life as far as I'm concerned. So I, I certainly <laughs> don't want to have any patchiness in there. <laughs> so when I, when I finish this book, I'm going to write down a, a loop of how to replace that behavior, what to replace it with. And uh, I'm going to test it and see if it works. And I, I, I'm thinking like maybe like a knee tap or some other behavior, maybe a big deep breath. I got to figure out exactly what it is, but I will I will keep you up to date on my progress. Man, I much respect there. I, I have a similar habit with my beard. And it's just when I'm talking to people, I'm always smoothing it over, making sure I don't have any strays or you know, like analyzing, okay, what, what am I missing here? What did I... Did I leave a big dangly hair, you know, when I trimmed it or something? So that that's my beard twitch, beard habit. It's hilarious. It reminds me of this meme I saw the other day where it says, um, uh, yeah, lumberjacks of the 1980s and then computer programmers of the 1980s. And it showed a picture of a guy in a flannel of a, a and a beard in the former and then a picture of a. Uh, you know, of a, of a skinny nerd in the latter. And then it was, it was some kind of play on, on words where ultimately it showed, um, computer, <laughs> computer programmers and lumberjacks have converged into one to one persona. So um, <laughs> per, perhaps something we can use in, in a future growth hacking campaign. Love it. <laughs> uh, speaking of which, so how can people find out more about you? What is, uh, what are your details? Do you want people to find you online, Twitter? Um, what's your preference? Yeah. Um, so my Twitter is Chris Geniusly. Um, also I'm doing a lot of blogging recently on, well, lot for me, uh, at cre- uh, medium.com at Chris geniusly. And then just, you know, uh, hit me up high at growthmonsters.com, And, um, yeah, we're pretty simple. 
Pretty simple uh, to find. Well, it was an absolute pleasure, my friend, and it was it was super cool to meet you. And uh, I'm especially excited that not only are you one of these awesome people that I've connected with that's going to to enhance my level of knowledge on a, a topic that I need to know more about, but also that you happen to live in my backyard so we can do face-to-face and actually be humans and talk to each other and shake hands. So I love it. I'm, I'm yeah. certainly looking forward to that. And uh, just wanted to thank you once again, Chris, for being on the show. And I encourage everyone that's interested in what you're, what you're offering to go check out your site and check out your posts. And then lastly, I'd like to just remind everyone that as always, this show is sponsored by Speak Up. So if you're looking to create positive change at work, go to getspeakup.com, enter in your work email address. You can create a problem that's been bugging you that's impeding the company's success. You can share a great idea that you've been too afraid to share in the past. You can do so anonymously if you'd like. The whole team gets to see your post. Everyone can vote. And then ultimately, management is presented with the top voted ideas, the top voted problems. We're also sponsored by our brand new product, Speak Up Live. So since Google discontinued their moderator product, and now companies are left to do all hands meetings the old fashioned way, we have launched Speak Up Live so that anyone can ask a question in a meeting digitally without having to muster up the courage to raise their hand in front of the whole team. And then everyone can vote on those questions and the moderator can simply answer those questions in order of popularity. So as always, I very much appreciate you listening to the podcast and we will catch you next time.